Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to The Angel with Michael Conniff. That's me, um, your host. We're a podcast dedicated to angels, of course, uh, VCs, investors, family offices, anyone who might want to invest in a startup or later rounds of capital. Um, and I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast Katie Trost, who is a business coach of great renown in Europe. Uh, based in the UK, originally from Germany. Welcome to the podcast, Katie. It's really a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. And I want to remind all of our listeners that we are on all the major uh, podcast platforms, including Apple, uh, Audible, Amazon, and so on. Um, about, I think, 10 in all. We're also on YouTube for video and on Spotify for audio and video. So you can pretty much um, get us anywhere. And um, it's really cool to have Katie because um, uh, Katie is a business coach at a very high level in Europe. Um, and we're going to talk in a minute about how a um, founder can tr transition into being a CEO. And, and she has thought this out. She has seven steps. Um, it sounds a little bit like an addiction program. Maybe that's, uh, <laughs> that's inevitable. But, um, but first, Katie, I want to hear a little bit more about your journey and how you how you became uh, uh, came to this position um, of uh, of uh, renown in, in in Europe and in the UK and I'm sure in the US as well. So, how, what's your journey? How does one do what you've done? Of course, I'm actually both in the US and in the UK. I would say probably sixty percent of my clients are in the US and actually Canada as well. And then the other 40 are in Europe and in the UK. I focus on working mainly with tech founders and tech CEOs, usually at the Series B, C, D stage. So they already host the startup phase. They already have an executive team. They have usually about 100 to 500 employees. And I got into it through becoming an executive coach, which I actually started in New York City. Uh, was, I think seven years ago or so when I did my certification and I did very general leadership development and worked with first-time leaders, worked with people who wanted to transition their career, people who wanted to advance their career, get a promotion, etc. Um, some people who just wanted to get clarity on the next steps. Do they want to start a business? Do they want to go freelance or completely switch sectors? And so I did that for a while and I liked it, but I just never really lit me up. So Somehow I ended up in the in the whole tech ecosystem and the startup ecosystem and started working with CEOs. Mm -hmm. And I quickly realized that the leadership development was not enough and that there was a lot of operational challenges that they have and that there was a lot of tactical, just making decisions, um, leading their team and having to solve challenges on a daily side. So a number of other certifications afterwards, OKRs, for example. Um, I did a business uh, business coaching certification as well. That took me over a year and a half. And then um, I also did multiple board programs and non-executive programs just to help also um, CEOs manage their boards better. And what what, um, what did you do before you became a coach? Were you, were you in marketing or sales or did you have other other interests? Yeah. Yeah, I was in marketing um, and not sales, marketing and branding. Mm -hmm. And I had a small agency myself and was doing lots of content actually for 
uh, for media outlets, both writing for other coaches, both writing for other business owners, and publishing on Forbes and Success Magazine, et cetera, and just, um, yeah, have been the, the good person then. And what, um, um, what made you shift to being a coach? Was there, was there kind of a precipitating event? A friend of mine told me about it, and it was, I think her friend who went to, uh, I think even Harvard, and I know we, we met through Harvard Alumni Entrepreneurs, and I think mm-hmm. he took a coach, uh, like a leadership or a coaching um, course at Harvard, and she was like, oh, Katie, you would love this. And I was so into personal development, and I was like, I need to do this. So I just did a, the first certification because I was so passionate about it. And then, um, yeah, after a while, I just focused more on the executive coaching and then the CEO coaching. And it really, at this point, I would say it leans a lot on advisory. There is probably 50% coaching. I also sit on advisory boards and um, have a, very much a coaching approach to my in my advisory roles as well. But for my coaching clients, I also have a lot of advisory um, mm-hmm. type work, I guess, where it's less um, about having the client find all the answers, but there's a lot of like tactical, okay, this is... I've seen this before 20 times and I know what works and, and, I, and I've seen what doesn't work. So it's a little bit more tactical than the typical executive coaching. So what's the difference between being a coach and being an advisor? Advisory is just very much pointing people in the right direction and um, telling them the answer, <laughs> telling them what's the right direction. <laughs> Obviously, always with, you know, uh, having the other person and having the client um, make the, the final decision. and you know, they they set the direction in the end. Um, but when you see things work in uh, different companies, it usually, yeah, it it's a lot of pattern recognition and understanding what works uh, for companies at that stage. All right, well, let's let's jump into the the um, how to go, how to go from being a founder to a CEO. And let me just set the stage a little bit. Um, yeah. The the um, I think we can all agree that founders are not always meant to be CEOs. Sometimes founders are frequently founders are replaced as companies move up the food chain. Uh, some founders are are great at it and naturals. Um, and I know you and I have seen you know both both extremes of that. Um, but the notion of your your seven step program, I guess we we could call it, is that um, to be a founder is one thing to be a CEO is another and it's not necessarily easy to get from one to the other to get from being a founder to being a CEO so so walk us through how how does one do this yeah it's not it's definitely not a program it's just <laughs> an article i wrote uh, a while ago and i find it quite relevant um especially uh, Usually, as as I said, I usually work with Series B, C, D, um, and that's a different transition from a scale-up CEO to a corporate CEO. Um, and my clients often ask me, okay, how do I go from leading 250 people to, let's say, 1,000 people? What are the changes, et cetera? And this transition that we talk about today is more at the, I would say, 50 to 100 people mark, um, usually after a Series A or so, when you add another management layer and all of a sudden you have an executive team or a very senior um uh, leadership team with senior VPs, et cetera. And to make that shift, I think it's super important if you really want to um, lead your company to a successful exit. 
And the statistics are not that great, actually. Because I think only 25% of founders actually IPO their company. And the other 75 are getting replaced by the board. So You mean by the time 25% of those who get to a B or C round? No, uh, to get to an IPO. Yeah, 25% get to an IPO. But I think if you started just with all founders, it would be a, you know, a tiny percentage of people get to an IPO. If you count yeah, but the, Exactly, exactly, exactly. But yeah. from the, the founders who lead their uh, the venture to an IPO, it's usually only about 25% that actually are the founding CEOs. The other ones are externally brought in yeah. CEOs. So what have, what have you found? What have you found? And what did you talk about in your article? So one of the things before I get into the into the different uh, steps or into the different areas that I think are super important to address is the importance of it. So uh, founder-led companies are about four to five times more successful than companies who are not led by the founder. And there there is a um, there is a study on it, and I'm happy to also link the study afterwards and actually even send the article and. You can make it to the episode. Yeah. Um, so it's super important for the board as well to keep the founder the CEO, if that's obviously what the founder wants. For the founder, it's super important to um, uh, to make that transition so they are not getting replaced by a professional CEO. Um, and so I think it makes sense to really take time. And usually in that one or two year a uh, period where the company really goes from startup to uh, this is an actual company company with 200 people plus and um, they raise one round after the other i think it really makes sense and for the founders to emphasize that this is something that they want to focus on and um and they want to have on their radar otherwise some people just don't want to right they can they can replace themselves and hire somebody else it's not necessarily Right. Um, an easy journey. It's not right for everyone, and um, and oftentimes it, it makes sense to step out, even if it's at a later stage. Of, you know, maybe a series C or so, and just get somebody else in there and step into the yeah. But there is some, there is such a thing as founder DNA, isn't it? I've I've, I've read right. a lot about this. That that you know, um, that very smart people who've done this many times really believe that founder DNA is essential almost all the time yeah um and how would you define founder dna you just carry a very different energy people usually especially the early employees they buy into you they believe in you they believe in your mission while a ceo who is professional oftentimes they are not necessarily founders so they might be corporate ceos and they just have a very different you on a business and somebody who's been there with the first two employees and then five employees and you know almost ran out of cash twice and just kept everybody in their seat and kept everybody committed to the mission. It's very, very different energy that they bring than somebody who's a corporate CEO who just manages the PL and you know, just it's more left brain, I would say. And the yeah. and the founder is just in it with the passion and um they can engage the whole the whole team with the strive for culture as well. So we're gonna get into that and for the culture piece as well. Uh yeah. important. So I think the the first step or the first area is to broaden the skill set in general. So in the beginning everybody or usually the founders, they do sales, they do marketing, they do the fundraising, they do operations. If they're technical, they they might even lead the, the engineering team as well. 
Um, so they have so many different um, tactical skills that they need to obviously develop and they, that they need to be good at. And then at one point, you hire heads of departments for each of those areas. So it's not that you have to manage a group of individuals anymore, but you manage one person and they have that background and they are very likely better than you. So the whole transition goes from being an individual musician to becoming almost like a conductor. So somebody who knows how to lead a team of leaders rather than just a lot of individuals. Um, one of the things that I love to do is to just go in and look at, okay, what are, uh, what's the meeting with them and who do I manage when and what are their responsibilities and what does the grade look like in each one of the areas and just putting that into the calendar and everything is taken care of in terms of the management of the, um, of the heads of departments, I think it's super important. Oftentimes people want to hire a COO. I find that pretty people may be a little bit overkill, but it really depends right on, on the on the CEO. And some of them are very much outward facing visionaries. They are not very good at um, management and they are frankly don't want to. And I think that it makes a lot of sense to complement the the gap in the skill set with a person who's really good at it and there's not necessarily one type of CEO and this person has to be operational and this person has to be tactical. Sometimes the, the founder is super good at that and they just want somebody um, who's more on the fair side, for example, or who's uh, even a face to their, to their own, um, company externally, right? So it's more about complementing the gaps in, of the skill set of the founder. Um, and also to just be able to understand and I would say admit that they are not perfect and that there is that they have weaknesses and therefore empower the team to step up and have them take things off of your plate and um, have them take responsibilities for things that you probably t- uh, had control over before. How does um, that, how, how hard is that for a founder to do? I think it really depends. Some people love it. They're like, I can't wait for, to have somebody in. Um, other people, they lie to themselves and they say, I can't wait to have somebody in, but then actually they want to keep control. And then others, you know, just, you know, they just want to hold on to some departments. And that's also understandable. Like, let's say, for example, in enterprise sales, like sometimes you have to just do founder-led sales for a while and you can do it actually for quite a while because it's enterprise, big clients, and, and you take on that role and you stay in a sense an individual contributor as well while you have obviously the CEO and management hat on as well. But some sometimes it's not even wrong to keep some of the um, responsibilities, right? Where a technical founder who just loves to code. Maybe that's just something that they do, even if it's just half no. a day a week. And they can, uh, you know, they can spend time with the engineering team and get somebody else to do more of the, the line management and maybe have a chief of staff who can compliment you on that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more about, okay, this is where I am at the moment. And this is, these are the skills that I want to work on and expand on. And then, uh, and then filling the gaps for the ones that you don't yeah, want. Are, in terms of the gaps, what are the, what are the most typical gaps in a founder 
before you get your hands on it? What, what, what do you see over and over? It really depends. Honestly, it really depends. Some people are natural born leaders in a sense, and they are super, super good at inspiring. They like when they get on the all hands meeting at the town hall, they get everybody excited about it. They're, you know, just the life of the party and everybody's on it. And other people, and oftentimes they actually are not that great at management. Um, and then other people are really good at, at the management and operation, and they don't necessarily want to get on the town hall, and all of a sudden there's 250 people, and you have to welcome them all, and, you know, oh, it's just a drag for some. So I think it really depends. And yeah. again, somebody who's technical, and somebody who has a business background, somebody who has a sales background, such different personalities. So I, I wouldn't say that it's one, you know, yeah. Gap that needs to be filled, it just really depends. But I would say that the operational stuff either they are way too operational, can't let go of it, or they're just not really good at, at the operational stuff at all. And that's okay as well. And what, that kind of, yeah. I was just going to say, what if, um, let's assume for a moment that you kind of address the skill set issue uh, satisfactorily. What's next? What are the next, what are the other yeah. steps that have to be gone through to make this work? Yeah, I was just going to say, so the, the first one kind of bleeds into the second one, I would say. It's redefining the role, and that just needs to happen continuously at that stage. If you scale 50 or 100% plus, sometimes over 100% in terms of either revenue or uh, or headcount, the role changes all the time. And to redefine the role, I think, is super important. And really understand, okay, these are the four or five different responsibilities where I have clarity on the KPIs, where I have clarity on uh, what's expected or what I expect from it, actually. That means those are basically my CEO objectives and or CEO OKRs, if you're familiar with the methodology. And to, to schedule everything in the calendar, right? So mm-hmm. when do I, uh, how much do I network, how much do I fundraise? How much do I uh, spend on management? How much time do I spend on management? Um, and just scheduling everything, pre-scheduling everything in the calendar. I think it's such a game changer. And you, you just don't, you don't forget to do certain things, I guess. And sometimes it's really hard to do what's high impact because you maybe love the marketing piece or you maybe love the networking piece, but you don't like other things. And six months pass by and you're like, oh, I actually completely neglect, neglected that. So I think it's important to just every six months redefine the role, uh, talk with your team. Okay, what can I delegate to you? Um, and then if you have a chief of staff again, um, they can make sure that, that's, uh, that that happens and that you always operate in your zone of genius where you, where you are energized by it and where you're good at it. The third, The third piece is then building a strong exec team. And that means not just having strong individual leaders, but to have them becoming their coach and to have them work well together. And there's an amazing book, actually two, one of them is called The Advantage. It's all about organizational health. And the first chapter is all about the executive team and the health and alignment of the executive team, mm-hmm. how, how cohesive it is. And then the second book is called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And it's basically a long version of the first chapter of, uh, of the other book. What was the and second? What was the name of the second book? A little more slowly. What is that again? It's called the Five Dysfunctions of a Team, 
Yeah, the author is Patrick Lencioni. It's a quite a well-known management book, I would say. I have all my all my clients read it because it's just it's sometimes when I read it and when I go through it and when when I talk about it, it seems so obvious. But mm-hmm. actually, oftentimes I would say eighty percent of these don't necessarily get it right. Oftentimes the uh, the individual C level or VP they see their department is their number one team. That means they defend them if things don't go to plan, if the progress isn't uh isn't you know as they said it would be um they come to the come to the leadership team meeting or to the executive team meeting and they don't see their peers as um as their team members right so the whole idea is to switch the dynamic and make the c level or the peer um, basically, the senior leadership team, the number one team. That means everything that's discussed here is uh, aligned on with one message that's communicated to the rest of the company when we leave the boardroom, right? We have a general understanding of each other. We understand our different personalities. We understand our different weaknesses. We understand our different leadership styles, etc. So there's lots of stuff that I was a lot of executive teams on that. Um, um, on that topic, where we do team building, so they build more trust. That means they can have more productive discussions where they can actually disagree with each other in order to find the solutions, where they can uh, hold each other accountable, where they can have uncomfortable conversations. And to have an executive team that operates that way, it's definitely going to help with the performance of the business. They hold each other to a standard, right? People yeah. switch through and try to defend themselves and try to defend the department. So let me summarize what you're saying. You go from as a founder, um, you, you're kind of a solo act, right? And yeah. As the company grows, you've got to be part of a team. The band has to get bigger, but exactly. everybody has to be, you know, so to speak, playing playing the same song. And and you, you saw that alignment. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, I think also the um, the buy-in becomes a really important process. So, for example, yeah. when you do strategic planning with your exec team, the real objective is not what's the strategy. The real objective is how can I get my executive team to be fully bought into the strategy because then execution takes care of itself. And you don't have to push it, and you don't have to tell them every month, and everybody's off track because they are the ones who came up with it. So involve your exact, have them be part of the strategic planning and the whole execution planning, and just really involve them because if they do, they're going to be the one carrying all of the um, responsibility as well. Right? Yeah. So, so we've got about five more minutes. So, so tell us the other, yeah. what are the other key tent poles of this strategy from founder to CEO? Of course. So the next one is um, transparency. And by that, and I tell this my clients all the time, the boardroom always seems like this mysterious black box where people don't know what's going on and they're like, oh, they're just going to take care of it. Right? So I think to be super transparent with the company performance, for example, or the challenges. Obviously, there is a place for everything, right? Some things you don't want to share necessarily. If you do 
a mass layoff and you know people are really worried you don't need to necessarily communicate it before you have to but otherwise i um i love the work of public journey often says that the chief exec is really the chief the cro the chief repetition or reminder officer <laughs> you just have to say things over and over and over again for people to go internalize it transparency and repetition exactly People and culture is also uh, another point that's important. Um, that's the first point or the first area um, where you you just want to standardize onboarding processes, recruiting processes, for employees, um, align your performance management with your core strategy, meaning everything in your your bonuses, etc. Everything is aligned. So people just have the right incentives. I know it seems so obvious, but many companies actually don't do that. Right, Having right. values. That are actually cultural OKRs and not just beautiful words on the on the wall, but really they guide you, they tell you what what behavior is encouraged, what behavior is not encouraged. Some companies go full on on the performance, some cultures go more on the um, niceness, and it just really depends. It's, it's, there is no wrong culture or right culture. It's just important to communicate it before you get people on board. How important is it to communicate the values precisely? Like, how important is it to be very clear what they are versus kind of having them as being sort of general, general rules? I like to use them actually as a management tool. So oftentimes, clients don't necessarily come to me and say, I want to now implement values. They have a challenge, and that challenge is usually underperformance. Um, or that challenge is, okay, we just have pockets and different pockets um, across the organization where people just have a completely different culture, right? So the culture builds itself if you don't set the standard for it. So they have the challenge and then oftentimes implementing values and then using them as a management tool and having them as very clear behavioral um, guidelines yeah. is often the answer to it. So it's not just like implementing the values for the sake of it, but it actually has it's great impact, and many of my clients, even three, four years later, say the values will be were invaluable skills to say once, and we can hire with them, we can hire with them, we can just set the standard, um, and we can the performance plan, for example, based on them, we can get bonuses based on them. So if you can really use them, I think it's just important. I know we don't have much more time, so I'm gonna go through the other two as well. Okay, go right ahead. So number six is to create more infrastructure or to just implement KPIs and OKRs. That means KPIs are cost metrics. Every department has them. This is when you know, okay, if everything is green, we're good. And OKRs are basically priorities. And to set that on a on a company level as well as on a department level is oftentimes again a great solution to the challenges of misalignment or lack of clarity on strategy or uh, people not collaborating with each other, people not taking ownership over certain objectives or over certain projects. So we get this cross, uh, cross-functional collaboration and ownership, and we get almost like a matrix cross-functional team where um, where you can uh, hold people accountable to, to progress and you just have this very clear communication and very, I love the methodology, to be honest, uh, to implement OKRs, and I think Actually, people come to me and they are like, we want to implement OKRs. I do have one, maybe one final question about this, Katie, which is, 
it sounds pretty top down. Now, is, yeah. is, do I have that right, or is there a scenario where it's more bottom up? No, it's top down, bottom up. So, giving this clarity on the what, that means, for example, certain milestones, um, obviously, uh, revenue targets, et cetera, how many new products we want to, uh, um, developer introduce, how many new offices we want to open, how many new people we want to hire, et cetera, and really defining the goals. And then with the executive team, I love, um, I love them doing the workshops around how we get there. And then the same happens at the, at the level below that, at the management level, where we get the clarity on the, on the what within the department. And then all of the teams come together and do the execution planning together. So it's very much top down, bottom up. But completely going bottom up, I also don't have good experience with that. And oftentimes that's actually why people want to implement this because there's such a disconnect between the, um, the annual revenue targets and then what people do. And there's just like, it's, it's usually the middle piece that's missing. So that's why I left the LPR. Well, Katie, that, that, that was really a lot to, lot to go through and you did it, you did it well and efficiently. <laughs> Um, I remind everybody, you're listening to The Angel with Michael Connick. We're here with Katie Gross, um, and we, we want to remind all of you um, to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. Look at it on YouTube or Spotify. Make sure to rank us, share us, uh, do everything you can to spread the word. And I want to thank Katie Gross, um, a business coach in the UK who works with companies and CEOs uh, really all over the world, U.S., Canada, Europe, all over the world. And um, where can people find you, Katie? Where, how do they know where to find you? You can find me on my website. That's the easiest. And that's Katie, K-A-T-Y, Sprott, P-R-O-S-T, and then slash podcast. And you can find my articles. You can find actually the article we talked about today. Um, you can find my CEO community. I have a CEO network. And then you can also look into my work more and just explore it. Sounds great. Well, I, I think you've been very generous to share this with us. So thanks so much for, for being on The Angel. Thank you for having me. And I want to remind all of you out there, as I like to say at the end of every broadcast, uh, pay attention, keep, keep listening, because we'll be back again with another podcast before you know it.